Welcome to Realty Talk, the show that brings together the country's most authoritative and respected property experts. Follow us on all the socials and subscribe for updates and exclusive offers. Realty Talk is powered by realty.com.au, connecting buyers, sellers and agents differently. Welcome to the Realty Talk Show, your property hub's trusted voice for property investment insights, inspiration and stories from Australia's top property experts, leaders and analysts. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance, and we've got some great insights to share with you again this week. To kick things off, Rusty Vibe have from Get Rear Buyers Agents unpacks what the federal budget means for property and investors and what more needs to be done. Nicole Davidson from Growth and Success then joins us to inspire you to achieve your version of happiness by succeeding on your own terms. Leading property market analyst John Linderman then joins us to find areas with property growth potential before the growth actually occurs by revealing his unique slingshot effect. So you can't afford to miss that. And to top off the show, my co-host Kevin Turner concludes our special series on the art of negotiation. And this week, he talks to buyer's agent Kate Bagos about the key attributes of a top negotiator and how you can pick the best one to help you get the best price. And before we get underway, Make sure you hit the subscribe button now wherever you're listening to or watching the show to ensure that we continue to attract the industry's best of the best so you can enjoy cutting-edge property information. And if you'd like a free copy of my award-winning book, Get Invested, make sure you also sign up on the realty.com.au homepage. We've got some great gold to share, so let's get underway. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. Know How has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less, and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. Now, when it comes to property investment, it seems like everyone's trying to find the next hotspot, like digging to discover gold nuggets before the rush starts. The sad reality is that by the time everyone is generally calling a location a hotspot, it's already too late and the area is likely to be shifting into the not spot zone. So how can you tap into tips and tricks that will help you to find areas with growth potential before the growth actually occurs? Well, this is where today's guest, John Linderman, comes to your rescue. As a long-term proven performer, as a highly respected property market analyst, John and his innovative property market research team at Property Power Partners has uncovered a way for you to easily find areas that have growth potential even while prices are falling, which he calls the slingshot effect. And he's going to unpack it for you now. So welcome back to the show, John. Hi, Bushy, and hello, everyone. It's uh, great to be here again. Awesome. Now, uh, you've got us all intrigued with the uh, slingshot effect. So uh, can you tell us what it is? What is the slingshot effect? Well, it's, um, and I've got a slingshot here to, to show you exactly <laughs> what a slingshot is in case you you didn't know but have you ever noticed that when you fire a slingshot you've got and i'm sorry if i'm bumping the mic there um but you've got to pull the payload down in order to shoot it up 
And this is exactly how the housing market works sometimes, not all the time, but right now is one of those times. And it's when demand suddenly starts to increase, buyer demand, and people race in and start buying properties. And what happens is that it's all the low-hanging fruit, the bargain price properties that get sold first. You know, people have been waiting for years maybe to sell a property and suddenly the buyers come along, they're happy to get rid of them. So what happens is that prices actually go down, just like with the slingshot. Um, and it's because all those lower price properties get sold first. And that it's a function of uh, what we know as the median price. And what that means is the median price is the middle point of all sales. So when the property data people collect the sales, they pick the middle one in, in price, that's the median. So if more lower price properties suddenly get sold, the median actually falls. And so it's like the payload getting pulled down in the slingshot, but it's only while those bargains are there. And then of course, uh, prices start shooting up. So I guess for looking from the outside in, if we're, we're seeing the median price dropping down over a period of time, but we're seeing the number of sales and the sales activity increasing, that, that's the sort of indicator that we're keeping an eye on? That's exactly what it is. And you can do that at a suburb level, or you can do it at the you know, whole of Australia level. For example, uh, in 2020, uh, interest rates you know, fell rapidly and then they reached record lows, but housing prices didn't actually start to go up until 2021. And the reason for that was there was all this excess stock which was being soaked up and so prices just sat there. But when all those low price properties were gone, what happened? We had a housing market boom. So you can see how that occurs nationally but you can also pick it as you say bushy look at the number of sales in an area and when those sales start increasing dramatically but the median price drops you know what's happening there is that the low-hanging fruit the bargain price properties are all getting snapped up yeah i love it so you've given us a really good indication then on when the slingshot effect occurs so uh, i'd love to get your thoughts on where the slingshot effect is occurring right now if you can please john it's about to occur, I think, in a lot of areas around Australia as confidence returns to the market. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that uh, we're doing this topic now is because it's the right time to use this strategy. It wouldn't be right, you know, in the middle of a boom, for example, uh, but it is, it's great now. And to give you an, an example of one suburb where uh, I've picked this up, and that is Rockley, which is an inner Brisbane suburb. It's about 10 k's from the CBD, it's where the Brisbane markets are, so most people in Brisbane would, would know Rockley. Yeah. Um, now, what I noticed there was that since October, the median house price in Rockley has dropped by $100,000. It's only 450000 Can you believe that? It's wow. unbelievable. Yet the number of sales has doubled since last October uh, from 30 to 60. And then how do you know this is the slingshot effect? Well, the number of listings has also dropped dramatically. And when I last time I checked, which was this morning, there was only a few of those bargain priced uh, properties left, you know. So depending on when this goes to air, if you have a quick look and there's still a few left, we'll grab one because those, those are going to go up dramatically in price. But that's how it works because it's the, the low hanging fruit that gets picked first. Yeah, I love it. It's, uh, it's such a... Uh, a really good insight, but uh, based on you know sort of information, if we're looking at a local level, most people can actually start to get their heads around. So mm. uh, really timely insight there, John, and uh, really want to thank you for coming on to, to share that with us and, and for uh, joining us again on the show today. Look, it's been a pleasure. And as I said, all you have to look for 
those three indicators the falling median price the number of sales increasing which you know normally doesn't happen and double check to make sure that the number of listings that is properties listed for sale is going down if all you get all those three occurring that's the slingshot effect at work i love it uh, really good example at, a, at the perfect time john uh, so there we have it uh, you've just heard another great example of the fact that you need to be very careful about where you get your property information based on hard data not on soft opinions so if you're looking for the right data and interpretation to help you make much better informed property decisions just go to lindemanreports.com.au where you'll find a large range of uh, property prediction reports including the latest report that's coming up soon sleepers set to boom report so keep an eye out for that one keep watching your property hubs realty talk your go-to place for all things property property deductions can save you thousands of dollars each year to make sure you maximize deductions you need to work with the most experienced quantity surveyor in the country bmt tax depreciation is the leading specialist in the industry they've completed over 700,000 tax deduction schedules for residential investment and commercial properties australia-wide bmt guarantee to find double your fee in the first full financial year deductions Call BMT on 1300 728 726 today for an obligation-free quote. Do you want to feel inspired? To feel that you matter? To feel that what you do matters? And, of course, to be happy? Well, you've come to the right place and at the right time because the answer to all of these questions lie in succeeding on your own terms. But what does succeeding on your own terms actually mean? Well, today's special guest, Nicole Davidson, believes you're capable of much more than you know. And she knows that deep down, you know it too. As a self-leadership coach, Nicole and her Growth to Success team specialize in helping you and other property professionals to become the best of who you are so you can succeed on your own terms. And today, she's going to whet our appetite on how you can do this. So welcome back to Realty Talk, Nicole. Thanks a lot for having me, Bushy. Thanks, Nicole. Well, it's a, a great subject to get into. Uh, everyone talks about succeeding on your own terms, but it, from where you sit, what does it actually take to succeed on your own terms? First of all, I'd say it takes giving yourself permission that you're allowed to do it. We live in a very conditioned society. We've grown up being told what's right, what's wrong, uh, what's appropriate, what's inappropriate. And so we find ourselves moving through life coming from a place of having to fit ourselves into other people's ideas about what success is. And there's that saying, you know, there's no point in climbing the ladder of success if it's leaning against the wrong wall. And life's too short. So the first thing is about giving yourself permission to do it. And then it takes a bit of introspection to actually figure out what it does mean to you. Because we're not taught to we're not taught to do that. We're taught to look outside of ourselves. We're taught to go with the flow. We're taught to not make a fuss. We're taught taught to fit in. And this world doesn't need us to fit in. It needs us to stand out. So giving yourself permission and really asking yourself what's important to you, why it's important, and just be willing to go against the grain and having the courage to do it. Yeah, 100% agree. It's it's really getting clear and, and comfortable with who you are and where you want to be. So 
So uh, how do you do it on your own terms then when there's so many external pressures then, Nicole? The first thing, as I said, I think it's about making a decision and the pain pushes until the vision pulls. So we can either wait until something dire happens in our life or we can actually sit there and say, you know what, this can be the first day of the rest of my life and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And in this externally focused world that throws uncertainty at us all the time, we need to go within and find that certainty. And when we go within and find that certainty, that's where we find our resourcefulness. That's where we find our inspiration. And that's where we find our courage. And there's that old saying, you know, better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. I totally think that's about what succeeding on your own terms is doing. Yeah, really well said. I've, I've often said if you're really clear on where you're heading and how you want to live, that becomes both a magnet and a compass because yes. magnetic in terms of you'll do whatever it takes to make that happen okay. and a compass in the context that then every decision you're making day to day is about is it taking me closer to where I want to, want to be or further away so we're taking the time to do that introspective look and and have a look between the ears rather than externally is something that very few of us do unfortunately Nicole but uh, like you, I, I can uh, encourage everyone to actually take some time and do that. So let's look at the flip side then. What's the cost of not doing it on your own terms? I think that's evident in our world. We've got ridiculous cases of depression, anxiety, overwhelm, frustration. It's laid bare. And I genuinely believe that's because that so many of us aren't coming from that place within that knows what's right for us so we're going into situations from a place of disempowerment we're going into situations from a place of lack and scarcity so why wouldn't we be anxious and why wouldn't we be depressed when we feel like there's no hope and so the thing is about focusing on what we can control yes extremely well said and, and eliminating the old should that's There's right. so many of us that feel that we should do this and we should do that. And we're, we're thinking about what we need to be doing uh, to be accepted by other people in the, the Insta world that we, we now live in. The show uh, world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Mm -hmm. So, but, well, sort of drilling into that a little bit then, how do you know when you are doing it right? You feel alive. And that's basically the baseline. And challenges can come your way. But you welcome those challenges because you think, you know what, I get to choose here. I think it's when we feel like we have no choice, that we feel like we're hemmed in, we're locked down, we're trapped. And so you know when you're doing it right, when you feel alive, when you can, you might not necessarily be able to see the future, but you know that there's something there. So I think you rely a lot more on your intuition and you tap into that a lot more. Yeah. And you start to trust a lot more. It's very hard to trust when you're scared from a place, from a disempowering scared. I differentiate fear in terms of there's that fear that, um, you know, I'm going to die or that fear that's going to cause us harm between, as opposed to that fear where we know that we have to do something because we're going to grow and we need to step into it and we need to lean into it. 
And they're two very different types of fear. And when you can start to differentiate between those two types of fear, then you start going the way the cave you fear to enter contains the treasure you seek. Yeah, one of it's my favourite quotes, one, isn't one, it? It is. And so when you can lean into that and when you can lean into that fear, but you know it's coming from a place of energy, it's coming from a place of excitement, even though there's fear there. And so when you can start taking those little forks in the road that we are up against in every moment and you start taking those forks in the road towards the light, then that's where you know you're living. Yeah. And that's where I believe that we really want to be. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I, I again, fully encourage everyone watching and listening to uh, feel the fear and do it anyway, because mm. uh, it's about getting uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable to a certain degree and challenging yourself to step beyond your own self-imposed boundaries quite often uh, to, to really start to, to feel alive and that excitement that comes with doing new things and heading in the direction that you ultimately want to head in. Mm. So, uh, look, uh, uh, again, I really want to thank you for opening your eyes to the latent opportunities that within us all, Nicole, and thanks again for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Well, as you can hear, succeeding on your own terms is about unleashing your energy, building your capacity, and creating the conditions for everyone to be successful. So, if you're serious about helping yourself and your team to truly succeed on your own terms, then reach out to Nicole at growthtosuccess.com.au. You're watching the Property Hub's Realty Talk, your go-to place for all things property. Successful property investment is a game of finance. Do you have the right team and the right game plan? Realty Talk is brought to you by Know How Property. More than mortgage brokers, Bushy Martin and his team of investment architects set you up with a sustainable strategy structured to lower your costs, tax, risk and stress while increasing your capacity for growth. Know How has helped over 1,900 homeowners and investors secure more than $800 million in property wealth. So get set to live more, work less and live your legacy. Want to know how to invest in your freedom? Visit knowhowproperty.com.au. In the midst of our national housing shortage and constrained new supply, affordability challenges and a growing rental prices that are probably inappropriately and quite inaccurately being blamed on so-called imaginary greedy investors as our immigrant population goes into surge material, the announcement of the latest federal budget has provided an opportunity for the government to allocate funding to address our growing housing crisis. But has it? Has it done the right thing in the right areas to start addressing and assistin assisting in alleviating worsening property conditions in a lot of parts of the country? Well, to unpack what the federal budget actually means to property and investors, we're joined by leading national buyers agent, Rusty Vibhav from Get Rare Property. So welcome back to the show, Rusty. Oh, thank you so much, Bushy. Thanks for this opportunity. Yeah, no, it's, uh, the annual exercise is always a bit of fun and games around the budget, and there's been a lot of media around uh, housing issues, as I sort of just mentioned in the entry. But uh, to sort of kick things off, Rusty, uh, can you give us a bit of a rundown of what are the key budget changes from a housing perspective? Sure. Before I get into it, just very quickly, this is the budget that we actually seen a surplus, a surplus that we have seen after 15 years. I mean, yes, it is $4.2 billion, which is pretty good, but then it's 
soon going to be in a deficit of about $13.9 billion in 23-24 and then beyond, you know, uh, in tune of $35 billion. So we really need to be mindful of the perspective here that yes, it's a positive surplus uh, budget, then it's going to go again in the deficit. So what we have seen is that there has been a, like, first of all, there has been a good recognition by the federal budget this time that housing is a key component of the current cost of living pressures, which is being faced by the Australian households. Federal budget has sought to address these housing uh, cost pressures with a range of small but carefully targeted support. What we have seen in this budget is that we have seen immediate Commonwealth rental assistance, which has increased to over 1 million uh, low-income renters. Yep. Second is widely eligibility criteria for 50,000 first home buyer guarantee um, in place. Yep. And then we have seen more funding for NHFIC, which is National Housing um, Financing Investment Committee, uh, loans to build 7,000 social and community housing dwellings, and then tax incentive for private sector built or rent projects, which could add up about 150,000 uh, rental dwellings over the next decade. So there are quite a few handful over there, um, but in my in any way, I'm happy to talk through one, one at a time. Uh, there could be could have been a lot more than we should really see from this budget. Yeah, okay. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd sort of like your take on these measures and how you would rate these initiatives in housing improvement terms, if you can uh, give us your thoughts on that. Sure, let's go dig one at a time. So for example, there's an increase to Commonwealth rent assistance. Now let's really talk about it. It's already an ongoing measure. Um, it's available to Australians on pensions and benefits, including job seeker, the family, ben family tax benefit and parenting payment. This budget has delivered funding to increase this maximum rate of the Commonwealth rent assistance payment by 15% in bid to help ease pressure on low income renters. Now, this total cost of government of this increase will be about $2.7 billion for yeah. next five years from 22 23. Now, this will be given to over $1 million, 1 million CRA recipients uh, that will benefit from this from 1st July 2023. Yep. But if you really look at the quantum for the individual recipient getting money, it's only maximum $31 per fortnight. Now, this is, by the way, the largest in, in what we have seen over the last 30 years. So it's really meaningful from the budget point of view. But $31 per fortnight then we have really seen the rents have gone too far ahead. Uh, you know, it's long, like it's long fallen behind soaring rental prices. What we have seen. Well, I heard a figure Rusty uh, uh, quoted uh, just recently through a, a research house that the medium uh, and average uh, rental uh, increase over the last twelve months has been about one hundred and thirteen dollars a fortnight. So if we're throwing thirty-one dollars at one hundred and thirteen, there's a, a pretty big gap. Exactly right. Exactly right. So it really looks meaningful that it has been 15% increase, but for someone who's receiving it, it's, it's peanuts. Yeah. So again, this is certainly something in the right direction, but it's only just stretching the edges of it, yeah. of the issue that we have it. Yeah. We have seen the expansion of the first home buyer guarantee. Now the, the conditions are challenging for first time buyers for whom the most significant hurdle for the home ownership is the deposit burden. Now yeah. it's already been going there. Now instead of coming up with a typical deposit of 20%, the first home guarantee scheme allows us an eligible applicant to buy with just 5% of deposit with the government guaranteeing the remaining 15% without the need of LMI, which is lenders mortgage insurance. Yeah. Now this has already been going on. Now what this budget saw is the expansion of this scheme 
So instead of 35,000 places in the year, it has been increased to 50,000. Yep. The government also extended the eligibility criteria for the first home buyer guarantee. Earlier it was it was just included to you know de facto partners or couples, but now it will be including any joint home buyers from a range of household and family members, as well as the permanent residents and former homeowners who have not owned a home for last 10 years. Earlier it was very rigid criteria. So eligibility criteria has expanded. Also the number of grants from 35,000 to 50,000. Again, you know, it's a good increase, good step in the direction. I would think that certainly uh, it's helping making the home buying a more affordable for extra 15,000. But the quantum of what we're really talking about is again, just touching the surface here. Yeah, again, I've heard figures quoted that on average is about 120 odd thousand first home buyers each and every year, if you look at the long term average. So an extra 15,000 towards it's probably not going to make a massive difference, unfortunately. Exactly right. And there's another measure, uh, which probably I like it to an extent relative to what we have seen so far is um, the build to rent investors. Now, yep. what it means is that it's a real, suddenly we all know we're in rental crisis. Vacancy rate is as low as 1% and rents have been increasing considerably. Now, in order to tackle the supply issue, government has given better incentive to the builder or developer to come up with the build to rent projects. This, what they have done is they have just encouraged in a way from the taxation point of view or the way the accounting has been done. What they've done is like in, instead of typical 2.5% depreciation rate, they've increased it to 4% per year for eligible new build to rent projects. Yep. So basically it makes it easy for any developer to think about uh, their rate of return because now the depreciation is, instead of typical 40 years, it's ha happening over uh, 25 years. Yeah. As in like from 2.5% to 4.4% depreciation schedule rate. And what they also have done is like they've reduced the withholding tax rate from 30% to 15% for the eligible fund payments from managed investment trusts to foreign residents on income from newly constructed residential built to rent properties. Yep. So effectively, what they're saying is that they are encouraging even a foreign investors to come in, build this company and, you know, and, and go for the withholding. Like, again, it makes it easy for them to invest in projects like that. So this is certainly great. These tax, con tax concession will apply to built to rent projects consisting of 50 or more apartments or dwellings. Yep. made available for rent to the general public. So the beneficiary is the general public who's kind of a four, who's struggling to find the right property. Um, again, it really is a question of supply and demand. When there's a huge demand building up, if you can tackle the supply side, things probably will be all right according to Economics 101. So, you know, like all this affordability criteria that we have been talking about so far, it's only going to make a demand bigger. Yep. But it doesn't really mean that it's actually slowing down uh, the price point. If there's more demand building up, the price will go up again, and that will actually again catapult the whole issue of affordability. Exactly what right. We, it, it, what it, we really it, like is, sorry, go on. No, no, yeah, go on, not Russell, yeah. Now, all I was saying is that the, the more we tackle the whole housing issue from the supply side, that's more sustainable, that's more, uh, you know, that is more of a solution the way we look at it because we are not here to just solve the problem for the short term. We are kind of actually aggravating by doing and, you know, making it easy for someone to rent or build. I mean, build is good, by the way, sorry. Uh, rent or, you know, making it easy for them to buy the property. 
Yeah. Again, with a 5% deposit, yes, there's a guarantee of 15%. The demand will build up, price will go further. And then the price that the, the family was looking at might actually go up eventually over the period of time. Yeah, it's, it's sort of a, by taking a reactive approach like this and only doing a little bit, what, what they're actually doing, as you say, is upping the demand without sorting out the supply side. So it's actually putting more pressure on on potentially on rents and housing prices. So it's uh, it's a little bit counter counterproductive in, in that that context. Uh, what what could the budget have focused more on, do you think, in the context of what we've been talking about? Yeah, Bush, if, if you don't mind, there's one more um, uh, thing that actually government did, which was more of a social uh, community housing that the government came up with. Yeah. Okay if I touch base on that very quickly as well? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so government actually also announced an extra $2 billion to lower the cost of construction of social and affordable dwellings. Yeah. Which was pretty good. People who can't afford homes, what they said is instead of, you know, with the budget that they had as NHFIC, they had an initial budget of $5.5 billion. They've changed it to seven point five. Now that's $2 billion over the next five years. Yeah. What it allows is actually, I mean, if you look really at the numbers, it is only allowing to support an additional 7,000 new social and community housing. Again, with the numbers we are talking about, you know, in hundreds and thousands, uh, 7,000 7, is, again, just scratching the surface. Dropping the backup. Yep. So these were the pretty good measure in the right direction in a way. I mean, understanding that it's still maybe a short term. But again, the quantum is not that enough. And again, we have to really see in the light that it's surplus for a while, but again, we're getting into deficit. There was a right balance that, you know, the budget um, has to really tackle into as well. Yeah, it's spot on. So flying back into the exercise, what, what do you think the budget could have focused more on then in the context of everything we've been talking about? Yeah, so again, it really goes back to the economics 101. Um, that first of all, we really understand, need to understand what's really the drivers of supply and demand. Yeah. Now, we are certainly seeing a huge demand happening. Yeah. The immigration is resuming back. So because of the pandemic, there was a slowdown in the net immigration. Now it's going back again. Um, we, we, so that's certainly the change in the population, which is increasing. But then also what we are seeing is there is a demand for smaller household. Yeah. And what it means is that even if we keep the population consistent, there's still a huge need of the household because earlier, for example, we were like the last time that we saw the average was about 2.6 members per household. But now people are going more nuclear. They are having their own holiday home. People are realizing that some work from home culture or other have you know, a remote home as well for me to holiday uh, from the beach side. So there's a need for the same population to have multiple dwellings for themselves. So yep. what we are saying is the average household count per family or the per dwelling is actually decreasing. Um, even if it's a 10% decrease, it actually means 10% increase in the demand. Spot on. So that is happening on one side. Yep. But then if you look at the supply pressure, which is a huge one here, we have limited availability of land it's yes Australia is a huge country as you and I know but developable land as released by the government that yes we can go and do some projects here or even the propensity of an Australian to live close to the heart of their workplace or, or to their to the community it's only a handful of cities that we really want to live in yep. so so it's not really so much so about the land supply but it's more of a developable land where people like to live in so it's really limited in the sense that 
The councils are not really releasing land for development. There's always a pressure from the community to, you know, to, there's always opposition typically saying that they're always opposing some development. They feel as a, as a general nature that we try to oppose any change. Yep. So that's really happening. But then the construction costs are going up. Significantly. Yeah, about 40% is uh, numbers I've heard about 40% increases in building costs uh, over the last uh, 12 months or more. Yeah, so it's actually coming down a bit. Like yes, at the peak, it was about 40%. Like if you look at the cost of timber and whatnot, but now it's more of a challenge in the supply chain as well. Um, yeah. So it is probably coming to, I guess, it's coming back to normal, but it's still a long way to go. But then the labor cost is also going up. Yeah. Yes, we have a huge immigrants coming in this country, but the kind of regulations that we have, it's not really like anyone can just go and become a big player. So we really need to have a focus a lot more on the education side of things, having that productivity around it, that the supply can build up very, I mean, on the sidelines as well. Yeah. So yes, on one side, we are talking about population increase, and here we are talking about labor shortage. So things around productivity, things around education around it, the job front as well. Like we are pretty lucky country that we have an employment rate of about 3.5%. Yes, it will come down to maybe, or sorry, come up to maybe 4.2, 4.3, which is still very good number. Very, very good number. Yeah. So the challenge is that, okay, how do we tackle this thing? Like we are still, I guess our employment rate is very good, um, but then how do we manage this construction cost? And what we really see is that cost is more around the inefficiencies around the, I guess, red tape or call it as a taxes on the whole building side of things, or even just the stamp duty for that example. Um, there are quite a few taxations that are going in, um, which is making the supply side very limited. If you see what really is going on in the newspapers as well, like lots of construction companies, developers are actually going burst. Yep. So when we really need that growth coming in, we really need the supply. Uh, we are actually under pressure that when we see the building approvals, they have been declining. And sharply, about 40% down or nearly 50% down in some areas. So we've, we've got this massive increase in demand and we've got this shrinking supply exercise. Uh, it certainly feels a little bit like there's been a bit of an opportunity missed uh, from the budget perspective in those terms. But uh, just to wrap it up then, uh, Rusty, uh, what should property owners, buyers and investors be doing and acting on from here? Yeah, so understanding that the supply and demand, we are in the shortage of properties. The people who are looking to move in the properties, they are happy to pay more rent. Then we also see that the inflation is actually towards a higher end and it will certainly come down, ease it uh, eventually. So if we, first of all, we should be thinking about property investing as a long-term investment. It should never be considered as if like what's really happening the last quarter, this quarter or next year, it should be more around, okay, are we good to hold this property for next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah. So when we see from that perspective, from that lens of long-term investment, the long-term trends should be studied. Yeah. And what we are seeing is this supply issue is not going to go away very quickly. The demand will continue to go from here. Even the report itself in the budget is we are talking about uh, there's a deficit of 106,000 homes by 2027. Yeah. Now, sometimes it's not really about the quantum, it's about the marginal shortage and the marginal supply. Yeah. And that tells me that it's going to be consistently shortage. That means there are more people 
fighting for the same property. Yeah. Now, yep. what it means is that when you're buying for the long term, yes, the inflation has gone up. Yes, we had a very good, you know, 11 hikes recently. But again, that's very nominal when it comes to the average for the long term, which is not too far from where we are. But if you look at the trend, maybe for the next six months, the inflation pressure might ease out, or at least the interest rate might not go further up. So it means we are pretty close to the plateau and it will only become, it becomes easy eventually uh, for people to hold, especially when the rents are rising. Yeah. So the holding costs are low and we are buying for the long term for the capital growth. Yeah. It suddenly makes sense for the savvy investors to reconsider what's really going on, look from the lens of the long term perspective. And where I see, you know, it's not every property is the same, you know, as a proposition. And that's where one should be doing due diligence on the same factors, because it's not one homogeneous market, it's a heterogeneous market. If we can go by and look at the, the dynamics of supply and demand of a particular neighborhood and then study it and then make a call, you and I know that huge number of people have made money through property investing, irrespective of what is the flavor, what is the sentiment. Yeah. I would actually on the way further make a point that when sentiment is low, it actually means it's a buyer's market. Absolutely. And that's where we should be taking benefit of low competition among the buyers. And whenever there's a good opportunity in the good area, we should go and reconsider our numbers. But again, we have to be very mindful of the risks we are taking because the challenge that sometimes people have is that they over leverage without really thinking about their what if scenarios or what if you know, yeah. this might happen, what happens to their life or you know, their income stream. So as long as we are aware of the risk we are taking, it's certainly worth considering opportunity to take benefit of this uh, supply demand inequality that we are seeing today. Totally agree. And I, I think the, the other points that you and I have spoken about before that are key in this when you're taking that long-term view is focus on quality over, over low price. Make sure you're investing in your education and of course, making sure you surround yourself with a, an, an A team of independent professionals who can cover each and every element of the exercise. So, look, mate, uh, really appreciate you coming back on the show today to to really unpack the budget for us and what it means. And uh, thanks for your very timely interpretation of that. And thanks for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rusty. Well, as you've just heard, while the latest budget measures are a small step in the right direction, on the large part, they appear to be token measures that are playing with the edges of the symptoms rather than really addressing the central housing supply side issue, which is actually the cause. And this is at the heart of most of our property issues, and this has actually been brewing for decades. So the Teflon days of short-term reactive hands-off finger-pointing by all levels of government and imaginary private sector villains really needs to stop. And the public sector needs to step up, take responsibility, and address housing supply through long-term proactive policy and provision rather than the blame game aimed at individual hardworking mum and dad investors who just aren't in a position to shoulder this uh, tremendous burden. Stay with us for more here on your Property Hub's Realty Talk, your trusted voice for all things property. As one of Australia's most outstanding buyers agents, Kate Bakos has a wealth of knowledge and experience when it comes to helping families secure their dream home or the perfect property to add to an investment portfolio. So who better to talk to about successful negotiation than Kate Bakos? And this time, 
I talked to Kate about the key attributes of a top negotiator and how you can pick the best one to help you get the best price. That's coming up next. Property depreciation is the natural wear and tear of a building and its assets. Property investors can claim depreciation as a tax deduction each financial year. Depreciation is a non-cash deduction. This means you don't need to spend any money in order to claim it. On average, BMT tax depreciation fined residential investors almost $9,000 in first full financial year deductions. Call BMT on 1300-728-726 today for an obligation-free quote. Oh, this is going to be a tough one for our guest, Kate Bacos. In this series, we're talking about top negotiation tips. But now I'm going to ask Kate, you know, what what are the traits of a top negotiator? Kate, have you thought about this? I mean, what, what yeah. are the skills that you are constantly honing up? And, and really, the reason I'm asking this is because someone who's looking at engaging a buyer's agent, they'll want to know they're getting a good one. So yeah. what should they be looking for? Wow, it is a good question. There's quite a few attributes. So let me talk about what I think is the most important one, and that's patience. You can't lose your nerve. You can't get angry. You've actually got to be considered and strategic the whole way through. Oh, so well, I'm, out, I'm out of it already. <laughs> <laughs> There's no room for being irrational. You've actually, and you can't let it get personal either. So if I'm ever a little bit more feisty or a little bit firm with an agent during a negotiation, it's absolutely measured. It's not an emotional outburst. And the next one is you need to be well equipped with, with information. And that is really your comparable sales analysis. You have to know your values because if you want to get into an argument with an agent about defending your offer versus their asking price, you've got to be able to point to some data and be really compelling. I think the next one is understanding people. So we've talked about asking lots of questions. Mm. You have to you know, ask questions, shut up, make sure you've got all of all of the information that you need to make a balanced decision. Um, another one is is not being lazy. You absolutely have to be hardworking because some negotiations will brew into the night and beyond midnight. And if you're not on, things can change. Sentiment can change. I remember when I first started as a cadet years ago in a selling office and my, my boss at the time, lovely guy, just said to me, always strike while the iron's hot. And that's because there's momentum there. If you put something on ice or if you think, oh, I'll come back to it tomorrow, people can change their mind or, you know, just get a little bit less excited about something. So you need to move quickly. And I think a, a really important one is you have to be personable. If, you, if you're struggling to get along with people you're negotiating with, it makes for a tougher negotiation. So while you can get in a ring and wear your boxing gloves, if you respect the person and it's not unpleasant, you can get a great outcome. Talking about the third one, the third point you made there uh, was talking about asking questions and showing interest, I think. And I, yeah. I I think this goes a long way to building that relationship between you and the buyer's agent to start with. You know, if the buyer's agent's not asking you questions about you, your lifestyle, your family, they're yeah. really only going to be ticking off, you know, how many bedrooms you want, how many car parks you want and so on. So all of those, all that stuff is meaningless. Yeah. Unless you understand how those features are going to be used. Because quite often, Kate, I've had people come to me and say, oh, I want a three-bedroom house and two bathrooms, and they end up buying a unit, you know, two-bedroom unit with one bathroom. And oh, it's because, true. you know, and the agent or the buyer's agent hasn't really listened and tried to make an assessment based on what they've learned. Is that fair comment? 
Very fair. Whenever we talk to clients about a new brief, you know, there's there's four essential elements and you've got to work out the hierarchy. So first is price and preferred budget or absolute limit. The next one is the land size. Next one's location. And then the last one's the style, size of the dwelling or condition of the dwelling. And if you work out very clearly what you feel their hierarchy is, you can pivot on some of the other things. I mean, if their hierarchy is, I must be in this particular postcode, no good showing them stuff outside of that postcode, but you might show them some different dwelling types or different land sizes. So you're right, you do need to know your client and beyond knowing what they're looking for and what they want as a product, you also need to get to know how they like to be communicated with and how they think they mm -hmm. deal with high pressure situations. Because when you're negotiating, if you've got someone that's crumbling or someone that absolutely needs to talk to their partner before giving them an instruction or someone that is likely to get jittery or, or very nervous, anxious you've got to be able to equip them for what's ahead and support them accordingly you don't want to be ringing someone with gentle updates and striking them if they're ambivalent mm. and they're busy at work you have to get to know your client mm. okay every buyer's agent in australia should watch what you just said because that's the best little bit of a buyer's agent training i've ever heard so thank oh, you so much thanks, it's Kevin. wonderful Always great talking to Kate Bacos. She's a very talented lady and she is our go-to person. We're talking about negotiation, how to work with buyers, agents and so on. We're going to wrap this series up with our final question of Kate. And that is, um, how you, actually, you touched on this one earlier in the series. And I think that is where you asked in the negotiation process, what's the motivation of the seller? And you know, it's it's one small question, but it's one question a lot of people don't ask because a lot of people don't think they have the right to ask it. So yeah. that's what I'm going to ask you when you come back. How do you ask it? Do you ask it? And how important is it? Kate Bakos will be back with us again in uh, in our next episode. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, Kate. Can't wait. See you soon. And that's a wrap for this week's show. Another big thanks to our guests, Rusty Bypath, Nicole Davidson. John Linderman and Kate Bakos. And before we go, make sure you don't miss another episode of your trusted voice for all things property by subscribing to the Property Hub on your favourite podcast player now, where you'll also enjoy the Get Invested podcast delivered to you each and every week. Thanks again to realty.com.au, BMT Tax Depreciation, Apiro Marketing, DM Media and Southern Cross Austereo for all of their ongoing support. I'm Bushy Martin from Know How Property Finance and along with Kevin Turner and the entire Property Hub Realty Talk team, please remember that a wise person does at once what a fool does, does at last. They both do the same things, just at different times. That's Food for Thought, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Miss something in this week's show or want to catch up on past shows? Do it anytime at realty.com.au where we connect buyers, sellers and agents differently. 